0: Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. I know I say this every time that I'm so excited to introduce our new guest, but it's true. I am really excited to introduce our new guest. I don't know, Chef Rossi. That's who we're having today. I, you know, everyone knows this. When you have a podcast, we've been on, we've done 250 shows. We get sent books and, you know, uh, public releases for different things. And people want, you know, from publicists. Well, most of them, uh, uh, not someone who I'd be interested in. That's all I can say. Uh, Just because I think, oh, that's not a good fit. Well, I'm so grateful. I read read the release from a publicist who sent me Chef Rossi. And the reason it's so... Impressive, And all our viewership is so many people based on food and chefs, former chefs and authors. So that's what we have today. And she likes, she goes by Rossi. I, I already asked her. I don't have to call her Chef Rossi. She goes by Rossi. The name of her book, The Punk Rock Queen of the Jews. Well, how do you not have that person on your podcast? I saw the... The title, I thought, is that the most interesting title I've ever heard? Because I think it is. So hello, Rossi, and welcome. Hello.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, I know that was a lengthy introduction, but I need to say something. I got to read, as I told you just a moment ago, uh, about maybe a third a third of the way through your book. I had to put it down because I didn't get it till late last night, and I'm going to read it this afternoon when we get off from this podcast. You are um, a chef a playwright, an author, you have a, is it a radio show or Mm -hmm. a podcast? Mm -hmm. So obviously you are a communicator. That's right. (laughs) Now, because people where, first of all, can they, I know that you publish this, it's called She Writes Press. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's why you were able to write the book you were because they actually let you write the book as it is. And, I, you know, it's just- That's well said. So tell us where
1: they can buy your book if people want to that are listening. It comes out this April. Okay. You can pre-order it from any bookstore. I love supporting independent bookstores. So um, if you go to, book, I think it's bookshop.org or .com, you get to find out what's your local independent bookstore. And you can you can always get it from Amazon, but it's nice, it's nice to support the local bookstores. You can of get it from course. Barnes and Noble, all the big guys, but I love any chance to support a local bookstore.
0: I know. It's very important.
1: Mm-hmm. It's important, Rossi.
0: Okay, so that so here I, I just want to start with this. Because I got to learn something about you by reading your book. Can you give us okay let's start with this how did you decide to write this book
1: it's been it's been a journey like I feel like I want to write a book about what I went through to write this book yeah. <laughs> so it's been uh, it's twisted I think I rewrote it something like 33 times I lost count so my first book came out in 2015 and that's called The Raging Skillet and fabulous it, it's a really it's a really fun read. And I end each each chapter with a recipe or two sort of pertinent to the chapter. And it's great for all ages. And so there's a few chapters in that book where I got into what happened in this book in a very sweet G-rated sort of way. Gotcha. And it always kind of bothered me that I never told the real story. Um, In New York, there is a thing because very few New Yorkers are actually from New York. So really, it's so rare. So my girlfriend's from New York. I feel like she should get a trophy. So (laughs) when I was a 20-something, I would go out to a bar and there would always be this contest. Who had the most interesting why or how I came to New York story would get a free drink. And I always won the drink wherever I was because (laughs) someone would say, oh, I came for love. I came for school. I came for a job. And I said, I was sent to live with a Hasidic rabbi who took in wayward Jewish girls and turned them around. And they were like, give <laughs> her the drink. <laughs> but in fact, I was kind of a wild rebellious kid. And my parents were old world Orthodox Jews. They were very very much like stepped out of time. So it was a bit like being raised by repressive grandparents, really. And they wanted me to be this proper little Jewish girl from the 1950s with no Christian friends who would button my top button. And and this is the 1970s, first of all, that's pretty hard to find that kind of girl anyway. And all <laughs> I had to do was just dye my hair pink and dance to the Ramones. So I was like a punk rocker and they wanted me to be this Puritan little Jewish girl from the 1950s. So that wasn't working too well. And I ran away from home, ran away from home. I had a spectacular time, had the best three months of my life, just a three month long party. Now, at that point, I was 16 years old. And when I was 16 years old, I really looked like I was 35, probably because I was unhappy and tired and a million reasons why you might look older. But I had this fantastic party in this motel I was living in. And I invited my little friends from high school who looked their age. And it was like Fleet week or something. And so there were all these sailors in town. And so I invited a whole bunch of sailors over on the condition that they would bring the pizza and the beer. And we proceeded to have this great party, teenagers dancing with the sailors, drinking beer. So the hotel manager... He didn't seem to mind that there were drug dealers and prostitutes living in the motel. He didn't mind that there was a street gang conducting business in the parking lot. None of these things bothered him. But it really bothered him seeing teenagers and sailors. So he called the police. And the police came and busted the party. And they took one look at me. And they thought I was a 35-year-old woman corrupting minors. But in fact, I was 16 years old. So... I wound up in the police station and they called my parents and it was, the jig was up, as we say. And so I thought, well, all right, I'm going back home. I'm going back to prison. But my parents put me in the velare, the red velare. And they started driving and like hours went by. I felt It must have been three hours. My father wasn't ever a fast driver. And they dropped me off with this Hasidic rabbi in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And what happened over the next two years was just the story I never, I never was able to tell the whole story. I told these little snippets of it. I got into it, like I said, a few chapters in my first book. And I always kind of kept it squeaky clean to some extent. But really a a lot of wonderful things happened, which is kind of amazing to say, but a lot of terrifying and horrifying things happened. And to start with, my parents had evidently not read a newspaper where they would have known that in 1981, Crown Heights was one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country, maybe in the world. I suppose Beirut at the time might have been more dangerous. And <laughs> so I think I look back, I'm like, was it really that bad? And I looked back and I read that there were 1700 murders the year that they dropped me off in Crown Heights. So, yeah, it was pretty bad. And the most dangerous things seemed to actually be happening from renegade Hasid. So I thought all the danger was when I left the community. But in fact, there were some bad apples inside the community, too. So there were also some amazing, wonderful people. So I always kind of danced around it because my parents were alive and yes, I had forgiven them and we'd come full circle As a matter of fact, I wound up taking care of my father the last five years of his life. And in the last, I guess the last couple of months he was alive, I stayed in a hotel right near his his, uh, nursing home because I wanted to be as close to him as I could. And I sat down because I wasn't sleeping, you know, because these things, you know, and I started typing the story. And one night I I just didn't sleep. And I when I woke up, I think I had typed like 300 pages. So I was like, oh, my God, I guess this story wants to come out. And for whatever reason, uh, taking care of my father in the, the last months of his life, uncorked it. And also, I don't think I could have published it while my parents were alive, because it really would have hurt them. I I never really told them the danger they had sent me to because I didn't didn't have the heart to tell them really. So that liberated me to tell the story.
0: I have to tell you, you don't even know this, Rossi, but you really just gave us miniature memoir class, okay, <laughs> to people that are that want to write memoir or that would like to um understand really what memoir is and you just gave a mini class in it trust me i think one of the most interesting things is that people don't realize of course pain and friction and then transformation is exactly the equation we're looking for in good writing at least i am do you know what i mean absolutely you took me on a journey <laughs> okay, I'm glad Rock Queen of the Jews. I'm in and I'm in your I'm in your car running with you. I think you made a wonderful point. I love that you've written, I read that in your bio, that you had read your first book, which is fabulous. Right. Um, and then because I think again for writers, we have a lot of writers that listen to us, sometimes it takes more than one or two books to really. Right. to tell your story. That's all. People say, Oh, I, I don't have another book in me. I said, ah, you never know. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe you do. I also love your point about permission. Right. And that's something that I think I'm in a writer's group now, and there is all women. Uh, I met them all at a, a writer's retreat in Tuscany last year. And, um, Permission's a tough one. And I think your comment saying I couldn't have written this book when my parents were alive. I think that's just I think that's sensitive and wonderful. Do you know what I mean? Because some because it's just the kind it was the kindest thing to do to be perfectly right. honest. Though I think people have a right and they have to find their own permission. I you know, ah, I'm Italian. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm Italian. If you for me, I feel exactly that way. Both my parents are gone now. So I can talk about them how I want to. Do you right, know what I mean? Right. Now, nobody else can. My sisters, I always say, we'd always say to boyfriends before we were married and we, we'd come in and out, but we'd say to them real quickly, we'd say, listen, we can say what we want about our parents, right. but don't you say a word. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and you know what I have to tell you? So you're Italian. Oh, Yes. I feel, I've been saying this forever, I feel like Jews and Italians are so similar. It's like, now my girlfriend, we're going on 14 years together, she's Italian, and there's just so many similarities. So, so with no. Jews, I feel like it's like guilt, food, family, and with <laughs> the, in the Italians, it's the same, but the order changes. I feel like the Italians, it's food, family, guilt, okay. but either way, we got the top three happening.
0: And I am married. My husband is a nice Jewish boy from Shaker Heights.
1: Mazel Tov!
0: I am the shiksa goddess, right? Okay? And I cannot. You said it better, Rossi. I have. When I I grew up in Marin County, outside of San Francisco, and the first my first marriage, I'm getting married to a nice Catholic boy, and all my bridesmaids were Jewish.
1: Okay, perfect. But,
0: not planned, just were. And my father used to say once more, I can't she find any Catholic girlfriends? <laughs> and my mother would say, not here. You no, know?
1: forget She's it.
0: drawn to the same people. And I agree with you. And the only thing I think is the difference. And I would extend that Jews, Italians, and Chinese.
1: Yes. Because, yes. I can't believe you just said that because I just have been talking about that for the last couple of days that I thought, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's amazing no, that you just said that, that well, I thought nobody ate like Jews and Italians, but you know who does? Chinese.
0: And you said, I've had so many conversations with my friends and I would say to them, the only difference between us is that Italians have less guilt. Like we're, we are don't guilt. But yeah. we, it's not the first thing on our plate. Do you know right. what I mean? We exactly. just we the push order it to the down. side. We push it to the side. Well, we'll deal with that later. Or you know, I'll say confession,
1: but right. not right. as much
0: guilt. And the Chinese, of course, growing up in Marin County in San Francisco, um, in San Francisco in the, those days, it was the fifties and the sixties. Rossi. every other block was Italians, Chinese, Italians, Chinese, right. and so. I knew what um, a dumpling was or bao and stuff as a bit, ba- you know, young. And if there was going to be an earthquake, my mother'd always say, Go to Mrs. Wu's. <laughs> She'll have plenty to eat. And I remember eating Chinese dumplings as a child thinking, This is just like a ravioli. Okay. Right. I
1: mean, <laughs> right. Right. This is this is. And so, as a Jew, I would say, This is just like a kreplach.
0: Exactly. And you know what else? My father's joke used to always be later on in life as. Uh, we all brought home different friends and different a variety of friends. And my father would say, you know what's funny about Italians and Jews and Chinese? I'd say, no, dad, what's funny? Because we all want to own the building. <laughs> and you know what? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Exactly. I, think, I think that when you have been, I think this country is built on successful immigrants. Do you know what I mean? In the real, that right. That's what it comes down to. People that worked really hard. And um, I, I love that. And I'm going to use your line. I will give you credit that it's the order of food and family and guilt right. and stuff. Okay.
1: It's perfect. Just recently, I because my my company in New York, I would say 90% of our business is that we cater weddings. And so I didn't start out as a wedding caterer. I started out as just an everything caterer. But I catered a wedding for a couple. And I had just noticed that wedding food was so terrible in the 80s. I mean, it, it yes. might look good. You might see this towers and pretty decorations, but it tasted like linoleum. Like if you got on the floor and you lick the floor, that was what wedding food tasted like in the 80s. There was no soul to it. It was just very like the chicken was never marinated. It was just like, I agree. Oh, well, there's a whole conversation that's supposed to happen in your mouth. Well, it didn't happen. So catered this wedding I'm like why can't it be just as great as if you went to a restaurant or your your mom's home cooking like why can't it be deep and soulful and good food so we just cooked up this beautiful food and everyone at the wedding started saying that they'd never had food like that at a wedding and then they went home and they told their friends and their cousins and their this and that the next thing you know
0: you were in business
1: yeah I'm a wedding caterer But there were all of these no-no's back then, like gay marriage, forget it. If you were a gay couple, you were terrified. You sort of whispered, you know, on the phone, is it all right if we're a same-sex couple? You know, they were traumatized. And I just put out this huge welcome wagon for alternative couples. And I would get these really traumatized couples that were different nationalities and different religions. So I kind of felt like I was 50% food and 50% therapy. But... It's worked out. I mean, this is like 34 or 35 years of this. And that's
0: phenomenal. That's phenomenal. I
1: love it. We've been doing all these Chinese weddings. I don't know. I've become the Jew to call for a Chinese wedding. And so I learned like if I'm catering a wedding for 100 Jews, I know I'm going to bring food for about 150 or so people. And if I'm catering a wedding for 100 Italians, about the same 150 or so people. But if I'm catering wedding for a hundred people who are Chinese, I'm going to bring food for 200. And I'm like, there, I'm like, I give the, uh, my hat is off to the Chinese. They eat more than the Jews and Italians. So that's a big deal. When I was still a teenager, one of my
0: Italian cousins who was just, she was so Italian with the dark curly hair and she'd always had pierced ears. She was just so she was like an Italian princess. Mm-hmm. She goes off to Berkeley and she falls in love with a Chinese a local Chinese boy from a local family in San Francisco and it was so this is so this is 1969 1970 and the invitations came out and everyone was her parents like said we have to be supportive he's a wonderful boy we right. we love our daughter i mean it was all but when we got there i have to tell you and this is i'm so grateful life hit, our world has changed rossi all the italians sat on one side of the banquet hall and all the chinese were sitting on the other side of the banquet hall <laughs> And it took a couple of bottles of whiskey on the table right, for everyone right. to finally say- That seems
1: oh. to be the thing.
0: And then they kept saying, and when we got in the car, it's like my father and my mother kept saying, what lovely people, what lovely people. <laughs> but there, you know, But the world has changed in some right. ways, thank God for the better. Well, how right. lucky for you, what a great niche you found for yourself.
1: It's been an interesting life, but it's yes. funny that I-, what I The book coming out, like when I writing the book and editing the book and the whole journey to now, you know, bring it to where it's out in the world shortly. That's where it all started. Like, because I've had so many difficult things. Being a woman chef in the 80s was really not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's not a welcoming place to women at all, which I never got. You know, like men love their wives cooking. They love their mamas cooking but they don't want a woman to get paid to cook. I mean, I don't understand that at all, but it was all of these crazy difficult things, especially the eighties was a spectacularly difficult era. And I even um, got a job in a supper club in Tribeca and which was almost like a suicide job because it was set up for people to drink and not eat. And so the kitchen was in a little trailer on wheels like that you would maybe cook for a film shoot out of. And then like a thousand people a day started coming to Eden. The first chef got taken away in an ambulance. He had a nervous (laughs) behind the line. So then while I was there, I was hired as like the party chef, the chef and the sous chef quit. And the owner said, would you be the chef, the sous chef and the party chef? And I was like, well, you know, if you triple my salary and let me hire who I want. And, you know, he had pretty much had to say yes but then i i just had to go to war go into survivor mode and no matter how hard it was i always said it still was not as hard as surviving crown heights like nothing wow. i've ever done in my life was nearly as difficult as those years that i lived in crown heights when i was like basically a child i was really, really? 17 18 years old from new jersey from a nice little safe town in new jersey where I was the rebel because I put a few pink streaks in my hair, whole how <laughs> shocking! you know. Now I'm in like one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in New York, dodging wild dogs and muggers and rapists and everything else. And I'm like, nothing after that phased me, even on like the hardest possible difficult days, it, nothing has phased me. So it's interesting as I've been going through the process of the book, I think the I had this um, a couple of days that was kind of interesting that I caught COVID. Everyone, most people have at some point or another. And so I needed to stay home and isolate. And I, I guess I, um, it wasn't bad. It really was like a bad cold. I'd had the shots, you know, so it wasn't so bad, but I didn't want to get anyone sick. So I stayed home and it was dark and dreary outside and a little bit rainy. And, Right then, I got a delivery of the advanced reader copies of the book. And my editor asked if I would look through and see if I saw any boo-boos. So normally, I'm so busy, I I can hardly give things attention. But here, I had five days, at least, to be locked in my apartment with the weird weather outside. And I sat in this leather, this funky old leather chair I have under this lamp, and I started slowly reading the story of this 16 17 18 year old girl and what she went through and i i was i guess i was sick enough from the covid that i really felt i was reading it as an outside person you know i i Good, was yes i just could not have been more removed and so by the end of the book i i started to cry cuz i really felt really sorry for that little kid i'm like oh my god this is just a little kid and I see kids that age all the time and their children, right? But going through it and all the years after, I never allowed myself even a drop of self-pity or, or remorse or even really any pride over it. I'd be like, yes, yeah, survived, moving on. You know. So it's I would say I kind of was like 20 years of therapy writing the book, <laughs> leaving the book. So probably saved a fortune in therapy.
0: How fabulous. I got out of the Culinary Academy, Rossi, in 1984. Now, I was prepared. I wasn't prepared because I'd never worked in a restaurant. I had the fantasy of what being a chef was going to be like. Mm-hmm. I had noticed in my class, of, in the school I was at in San Francisco, there were 300 people. Only like three of us were women. And I question, I didn't really question what that meant. Do you know what I mean? Right. And then... As I was going to school and every single day, one of the male chefs would say, you know, you can't get a job, right? Or you boys come in close so you can see this. Don't worry about the girls. They'll never get a chance to do this anyway. And you know what? They were trying to prepare me. And then when I got out of school, they had been right. No one was going to hire me. (laughs) It's crazy.
1: Crazy. Same with bartending, too. You couldn't get a job as a female bartender. Yeah.
0: And everybody said different things. But I found a catering company in Marina del Rey. And it was right near the 4th of July. And they were yacht caterers. You remember when all that was a big
1: thing. In right, right.
0: And um, to make the long story short, they gave me a chance. They, the guy was an absolute pig. Just an absolute pig of a human being, the chef. And I couldn't bear him. But I smiled nice and he said, well, you're gonna make fruit baskets, you know. And I said, good, because I'm so good at that. Do you know what I right. mean? I built all these bloody fruit baskets for the Fourth of July weekend. But here was the thing. As I watched him, I thought he has a cocaine problem. And mm-hmm. he did serious cocaine. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, one day he'll drop. Do you know what I mean? One day right, right. he's gonna drop. Definitely. And guess what? I was there about six months. They'd hired me for $8 an hour or whatever was the pay. And I hung in there because it was close to my apartment. I had moved to Los Angeles. I was in Venice, California. I could walk to work if I wanted to. And the day that he dropped, by then I knew more about the kitchen. Right. And they said, you're going to be in charge because, you know, we don't know what's happened to Peter. And I thought, I know what's happened to Peter. (laughs) But the bottom line was, I am so grateful for that opportunity, and then I negotiated salary, and I learned what to do, and it was wonderful, but I really, you know, it was an interesting time. I had, if he, I'm grateful I landed there because I don't know that I would have stayed in the industry because it was pretty tough trying to find a
1: job. it's good that you stuck it out. I had to. Mr. Cokehead. Yeah. That was, that was really like, it seemed every chef in the 80s. Oh, Yes. You know, okay. they were like either on heroin or Coke or they were, yes. they were Jack Daniels and chain smoking and the whole thing.
0: And, you know, when there's already a certain amount of stress in the kitchen, it wasn't exactly. And then the- you add
1: cocaine to it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. High adrenaline.
0: Like t- times weren't tough enough. Now, I asked Rossi before we started talking. Cindy and I have said we were going to do a podcast because, again, so many of the people that listen to us, males and females, have either been in food, been chefs, worked as waitresses, something. Right. I want you to tell if you what one of your worst catering stories that ever happened, and I will tell you one of mine, which is totally is actually pretty hysterical and was totally my fault, but
1: I was a new chef and I didn't know any better. Well, I I would say my worst story in terms of the worst possible thing that could happen actually is also my favorite story in terms of succeeding anyway. So this is back in the eighties. And what would happen is uh, I liked promoting myself as Chef Rossi because what I loved is that people couldn't tell, is that a man or a woman? Yes. And this is like pre, you know, pre-social media and all those kinds of things. So 90% of the time people come into the kitchen looking for Chef Rossi and they go up to everyone in the kitchen before me. Are you Chef Rossi? Are you Chef Rossi? To my sous chef. And they even go up to my dishwasher. And then finally, the only one left in the kitchen is me. And I'm like, is it so hard to believe? Is it so hard to believe? But so... I got this client in the eighties and it really was like uh, these good old boys from Oklahoma. And the man that I was dealing with, he kind of reminded me a little bit of like, he should have been in like a Tennessee Williams novel, like big daddy. I'm big daddy, you know, like that kind of thing. So they were having this party and the party, even though we're from Oklahoma, the party was going to be out in long Island and they wanted the piece de resistance of the party to be their Oklahoma chili. Now, I thought I made some pretty good chili, right? So they were the guys bragging to me about his Oklahoma chili. So I said, well, I think I make some pretty fantastic chili. So I'll make a nice Oklahoma chili that you're going to love. And he He was horrified that this Yankee girl would even try. So he insisted that they were going to ship their Oklahoma chili all the way to New York for their party. And I could make everything else, but they would not have this Yankee Jewish girl making their Oklahoma chili. So I'm like, fine, fine, fine. You know, as they say in Israel, Mbaya, whatever, you know, dayenu. So we had a really busy day. And I, I said, I had two different, couple of different chef teams. And I sent the one chef team to the party. It turned out it was really all the way out in the boondocks of Long Island. It was like hours out there. And they get all the way out there and realize that they left the chili back in the kitchen and so there's no way by the time three hours to get it three hours back the party's over right so everyone was in a panic and i'm like okay and i gave specific instructions you go to wendy's and you get 50 quarts of chili from wendy's and so smart then we're gonna pack it with cumin coriander tabasco we went through the fridge At the client's house and, you know, it was a private home and in the fridge was Worcestershire and mustard, a million other things to add. And so every single thing but the kitchen sink went in the Wendy's chili and and we served it in, I think, in a hollowed out corn muffin, you know. So anyway, the party was a big hit. And so a few days later, I get a call from Big Daddy. Right. And I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm going to have to call my lawyer. You know, he's all ready to say, listen, I'm sorry, you know, whatever. And he goes, aren't you glad that we sent you our chili? Isn't it just the best chili in the world? And he was just like going like bragging, like, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? And I said, you're absolutely right, sir. I bow to thee. And you're clearly superior chili. It really is the best chili in the world. I'm just trying not to laugh, right? I get off the phone with him. Then meanwhile, we had all of this Oklahoma chili and we didn't know what to do with it. So we put it on every staff meal for like the next six months. And we had a very gassy staff for about six months. But I started saying, I'm going to change the name of my company to like Fart Incorporated. But it was just hysterical. This guy could not tell the difference between our doctored up, Wendy's chili and his Oklahoma chili. See,
0: in reality, that story is just brilliant. It's not even a disaster. Brilliant. Mine was, this is so long ago, I was running a big kitchen and so was my roommate. Uh, We were both the executive chefs of two of the biggest companies in Los Angeles. So we've worked our way up. But Mm -hmm. a young woman who was the pastry chef at... Spago, the, the original pastry chef at Spago, her name was Melinda. She wants to start making her own wedding cakes, but she doesn't know how to price them. She doesn't know how to sell them, you know, all that kind of stuff. So my my roommate and Catherine, so we give her some hand, and she makes delicious, gorgeous cakes. And we've been catering now for a year or two, and I'm saying to her, Melinda, you got to charge $500, a thousand bucks for this. Do you know what I mean? There is no money in this without, you know, you can't make, you're making 10 cents an hour. So blah, blah, blah. Well, she, of course, the day that she's supposed to bring this wedding cake to the Riviera Country Club in Brentwood, she can't do it. So she calls Catherine and I and say, will you deliver the cake for me? Now, you know, Rossi, delivering a wedding cake is an art form itself. Oh, yeah. Okay. Almost okay. as hard
1: as making them.
0: It's almost, and I've, I'd only delivered once when I was young and naive, when I was still in school, and I swore I'd never do it again. But we do. We have it. Oh, God, it's a nightmare. And we get she gives us some piping, extra piping bags. And of course, we have like a bushel of flowers because that's what they did in the 80s. Fresh those stargazer lilies that, you know, and the ones that smell. OK, so I'm going to de- Catherine and I are going to put the cake together and we're going to I'm going to decorate it because I'm good at that. And OK, we get to the River Country Club. They give us the table. We're doing the cake. I decorate it. The bride comes and says it's the most beautiful cake. I mean, she's in the back getting dressed, but the mother of everybody's happy. I look up. And I said to the maitre d' at the Riviera Country Club, who I'm surprised didn't ask us for like a certificate of insurance or anything, because, of course, we didn't have any. And years later, I would say to Wolfgang Puck, that was, you know, whatever happened to her. And, of course, I didn't mention to him that we'd probably stolen all the ingredients from his kitchen. So it was actually the the cake was from Wolfgang Puck, compliments of Wolfgang I say to the maitre d, the snotty maitre d, is that table too close to the band? Oh, no. And he says, No, we always have it there. I go, Okay. So we are getting ready. The wedding's happening now. They've seen the cakes on display. And I think the ceremony had just happened. And they start, the band starts, and the man with the ba- the ba- uh, the big, gigantic violin, the bass, yeah. he's uh, the last thing I see out of the corner oh. of my eye is the base has left his hands and it's dancing towards the wedding cake. Oh. And sure enough, oh. it just collides with the table.
1: Oh dear.
0: And the only thing, and the, everyone, I mean, I was in such shock. Catherine and I just stood there, our mouths open, but the maitre d' said, well, clean it up. Clean it up and get another cake. Now that was the thing when he said, get another cake. I said, "What?" Well, what are you
1: talking you about? You got a McDonald's. Can I have a McDonald's? What, what do you mean
0: another place? cake? So we go over the bride. For some reason, the bride, I don't know if she was on Valium. She wasn't that upset. The mother was upset. But I said to Catherine, we can't throw this cake away. Okay. So we're cleaning it up with like uh trying to make, you know, um, we're cleaning it up with the boxes that were from the cake. Right. And then all of a sudden it was the only problem was, because I thought I'd had this happen to me once before another party. We shoved that mess, that cake with a spoon into champagne glasses. And <laughs> I said, we're serving this like something different, you know. <laughs> and we sit, we filled all these champagne glasses with the, the mess of a cake. But then the photographer said, oh, I hadn't gotten a picture of it yet. And we need the picture with the bride and groom's hands. So anyway, we found there was a terrible bakery in town that had all those styrofoam cakes in the window that you (laughs) blew the dirt and dust off. And we called them and they were kind enough to bring us one. And she put her hands in front of it and we kind of blew the dust off of it and she
1: had pictures with a cake. Oh, my God. That's a good save. Uh, it was the best well, you know but in the end the in the martini glass or you know the tulip glass it actually probably was a lot more fun to eat it that way than slice on, a, on the plate you know I'm going
0: to tell you it worked that worked it was
1: a good save we had one I'm always telling clients they got hooked on that stupid whipped cream frost you know frosting we had a summer wedding in a non-air-conditioned space and the bride had us had delivered this whipped cream thing and we're just watching it like like it's going like this like this like this we're all watching it in slow motion and it goes down on the floor my maitre d at the time she was a really amazing woman and so there were like five tables right around the cake who saw what happened and the other people were dancing they didn't see what happened and so she turns to the five tables and she says turn around and look away don't look this way and no one will have to know just do that for the bride, and so everybody turned around and looked away. And she scooped it up and kind of they remolded it and and just covered it with orch- orchids. And basically, it looked kind of like a cake mountain. Remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yes. Sort of looked like that, covered in flowers. Like whatever, all right, you know. You know what? Your sense of humor. You
0: know what? How fabulous! That's all I can say. How yeah. fabulous. And once you cut it, and who cares? No one cares that people have had too much champagne anyway and they just want some sugar.
1: No one ever eats the wedding cake anyway. It's like I'll cut 150 often. slices. I'll Thank maybe serve 50 of them. So whatever. Dianu. I'm up for a good, I'm always up for a good alternative to a wedding cake. Like I have talked people into doing the cupcake towers. Many I love them. Many years before anyone ever did a cupcake tower and donut towers, but I once did a tower of Twinkies, which I thought was kind of adorable. We did a tower of chocolate chip cookies and then the bride and groom dipped them in milk and fed them to each other.
0: Oh, that's cute.
1: Really oh, that's cute. cute. We did a tower of Yodels, a tower of Girl Scout cookies, a tower of rice crispy treats. I mean, why not just have a little fun with it?
0: When crispy cream donuts finally came to Los Angeles we made some wedding cakes out of Krispy Kreme donuts where we just put them on their side, you know, like tires. And you know what? And some frosting, some frosting buttons in between. People
1: loved them. I think that was one of the most popular cakes we ever did. Oh, forget it. Krispy Kreme is like you just put sex in your mouth. That thing is so good. And you don't necessarily feel so great an hour later, but the going in part is good.
0: Sometimes that happens with sex. (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's a very, that's a very good point. Oh, boy now madam i just want to say the name of your book again mm-hmm. a punk rock queen the punk rock queen of the jews a memoir by rossi it's she writes press and did i read this correctly are they
1: in berkeley was that what your I- home, base is, berkeley, home but, base is berkeley you know okay. these days, everybody's everywhere
0: yeah but And it can be bought on at local bookstores. So you just need to know the name of it. And again, Rossi, it's just one word. Her name is one word. Mm -hmm. I cannot thank you enough. I know how busy you are to have spent your time with us today. Now, after the book comes out, Mm -hmm. you need to come back in like six months and tell us what's what some of the stories of being on tour and what people have said to you. Oh, I'll tell you, definitely. Because I think that is as fascinating as books have, you know, a life of their own. That's all I can say, Rossi, to me. You're absolutely right. And Cindy and I, Cindy and I wrote about, I don't know, a lot of celebrity cookbooks. But Mm -hmm. I... Cindy and I wrote nine of, you know, nine of our own, and each one took on its own life. Some one or two were duds Mm -hmm. and the other ones were real successful. So, you know, that's what people that think writing a book. All I know is this. There are a lot of work. But when I read your book last night, I thought is I know how much work it was. I know there was pain involved sometimes. But you know what? It's a joy
1: for the reader. Oh, thank you, sweetie. I it mean, it's it. been an experience. Do we have time for a few more minutes or, or are we? Oh, yes. When I was, I had this bizarre Please. experience where I finally wrote the whole thing. Yeah. And then I started sending it out to editors. And I think that you, you could do a, a sort of heard violin music, you know, what a beautiful book, what a, a vivid story of New York in the 1980s. Well, we're so proud of Rossi. What a survivor. I mean, this Pages yeah. and pages of flowery compliments. And then they usually ended with, however, we don't publish memoir. There was right. a big movement against publishing memoir. So I had um, my editor at the time said, well, why don't you rewrite it as a novel? And I said, well, I, it went against my soul. I just, yes. it's my story. And she said, if you rewrite it as a novel, then um, we then can- Then I can sell it. Yeah, then you can get it published. <laughs> So it was so, it really broke my heart. But so I sat that down and I just took everything out of first person, everything, I did this and I did this, into this happened to her and she did this. And even though it broke my heart to do it, it opened me up in this huge way. Like there were some scenes that I really couldn't quite go there saying I did this and I did that. But when I said this happened to her and she did this, I could just open up in this huge way. So I put the whole book as a novel into third person. And then I went to my last editor, who was the best and most powerful of all of them. And she said, this is a powerful, wonderful story, but it's obviously a memoir. It's obviously your story. Why on earth did you turn it into a novel? She said, I'd love to be your editor and to work with you. She said, but I just can't stand this as a novel. If you're willing to put it back into first person and take ownership of it and do it as a memoir and as your personal story, I would be honored to be your editor. So I said, there you have it. Right. So then I sat down and I wrote it all again, put the whole book. This is like 300 something pages, put the whole book back into first person. But it wasn't. It, it was an enormous amount of time, yes, a couple of years of my life, but it wasn't a waste because no. it had opened up in this huge way. There were things I never could have done if I hadn't done that. And so I always thought, you know, I think I'll share that with as many writers as I can. If you're writing a memoir and you're you're feeling like you want to be able to go deeper and further and braver, put the whole thing into third person and then rewrite it back after. And you'll see... It's been kind of a trippy experience. And so now it's this this multi-layered deep creation that I never could have quite done if I hadn't done that.
0: See, but this is, Rossi, and this is another, talk about a lesson for people that if they have not, or if they're starting to write, I always say this to people, you know, you write it, but the real work is in the rewriting and then mm-hmm. it's rewriting. Right. And then you rewrite oh, yeah. the rewrites. Right. And one and I said, so people say, Oh, I wrote this. It took me two hours. It wasn't very good. I felt like saying, honey, that you could
1: spend the next six months on that paragraph. So it. I know. started writing this book in 2016. Good for so, you. You know, this is eight years later. I yeah. remember I used to read books and in the thank you section, people would say, I've been working on this book for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or whatever. And I would think, why? Why so long? What? What's the deal? In fact, it just, my first book took like 14 years from- I'm sure it did. I've I'm not looking for your to, first book. Is what's your that? first book still in print? It's still in print. I'm going to look for it. get it everywhere. Okay. The first book actually became a play. It was adapted for the stage and it's traveled the country. We just had our first off-Broadway reading and we're looking for some executive producers to back us for a run off-Broadway. Got and- it. It became this hysterical. It's a it's a play where people laugh and cry, literally. And the last, the uh, off-Broadway reading we had, you know the comedian Judy Gold? Yes. So she played me in the play. So Judy Gold is a loudmouth Jewish lesbian from New Jersey, and she was playing a loudmouth Jewish lesbian from New Jersey. It wasn't a big reach for her, but it was great. So you just need angels.
0: You just need some money. Right. Okay, so let's put that out there. Okay, putting it out there. Put it out there. We need money. Again, Rossi, thank you. This has been so delightful. Um, I want people to remember that the name of her book, The Punk Rock Queen of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Rossi, a memoir. I want to, as always, when you have questions or when this is broadcast, it'll be up in a couple of weeks. Rossi, Cindy contacts you and tells you if people want to contact us, they can contact us at womanbeyond at icloud.com. We will also put up Chef Rossi's information so you can contact her. And I have to thank Cindy, who keeps the train on the tracks and has for 200 and I think you are 249th podcast. Rossi. I think pretty close. So, or 200. Well, you know why it was real simple. I think women only get better. I love women's stories. Now I like men I've had, this is my second husband. Would I have a third? Oh God, no. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I think women get better and better and better. And our stories regard, whatever it is, need to be told. And Cindy and I had worked together for 25 years. Rossi, we were, I was out of catering by the time Cindy came to me and I had become a food stylist and we had a business and we worked all the time and we wrote other people's books and we wrote some of our own. So we stayed busy. And when I knew it was time for me to retire, the only thing I was sad about was not seeing Cindy. Oh, because we'd worked together almost every day for like 25 years. So we started this podcast so that we could still see each other and I'm very
1: grateful. That's beautiful, I love that story. Thank you. And, and people said- is so great, I mean, I'm so amazed that so many women don't help other women. I, I know. My greatest pet peeve is women who have positions that won't help other women. I, know. I love it's... stories like this because we're so much stronger together.
0: It's so obvious. I know. Well, thank you, madam. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for people that listen. Thank you for people that send us messages. And um, that's it. And Rossi, you're going to come back so that you can, in about six months, we'll talk about your journey again. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks, ladies. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.